Views and opinions expressed by the hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of their employers. This podcast may not be suitable for children. Adults may find details triggering and or offensive. Listener's discretion is advised. What's poppin' everybody? This is Priscilla. And this is Norma. And you're listening to... It's It's the the mystery mystery for me. me. And Momo's Little Paws. Tuesday episode finally I feel like we have not had too many in the last two months it's been a minute it has been but I've been so sick y'all you have no idea you really have and do I like ever get sick you never get sick not to the point that I'm calling out of work too that never happens never Mm -mm. okay I got really really bad food poisoning last week I'm telling y'all, I thought I was out for the count. <laughs> it was crazy. I had chills. I was overheated. I was throwing up. I, I just won't even go into too many details, but I was suffering. But yeah, it's, it's just been a weird two months. Whoever's doing brujeria on me, can you please stop? I promise I'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> but I think... Um, but that being said, we do appreciate everyone's support. No, we really do, though, because it's just been trying times. But you know what? I feel like we're on the other side of it, and I'm really happy about that. On the Um, other side of what? On the other side of me being sick all the time. I mean, honestly, was it in April that I had, like, COVID or something? Wasn't it in April? Mm -hmm. Like, it was so... It was definitely COVID-like, and I had taken a test at home. But you guys know it's, like, not really accurate, but I had no voice. Yeah. It was... It's been a trying time. Anyways, it looks like pretty smooth sailing going forward for the most part, right? Norma's wrapping up law school. I mean, the bar exam is starting. And Norma, when's the exam again for you? July 26th and July 27th. So please send your positive vibes to Norma (laughs) because you basically start studying right after you graduate. That's just kind of how it goes when you're in law school. You're expected to take that July exam. So you graduate in May, and then boom, you study for like, like my early twelve weeks or something. Start starts tomorrow. Oh my goodness! For Demas, how you feeling? How, do you see the books on the table? Yeah, I have not opened them. <laughs> they have been there for a month. Listen, I don't want to go back there. I don't. <laughs> Those were some crazy times, and it was like the middle of the pandemic when I was taking the bar. And the July bar for me got pushed to October and then it became online, which was like, it was the first time in history they had ever had it online. Is it in person? Yeah. See, right back in person. Well, we're wishing you good luck and we'll definitely try to plan around your schedule or I, I mean, I, I will try to plan around your schedule the best I can so that we can record. You might have to have a few solo sessions. No, or you know what? Maybe I'll do oh, some guest spots. Oh, why don't you spots. do guest spots? Yeah. yeah, okay. Maybe I will do some guest spots some week. I know some people, someone wrote that they would love to have mom sit in and listen to it, you know, listen to me tell the story of a 
I don't know, of a case. And um, that would be interesting because mom is so spicy. She's just like, she says whatever comes to her mind. I don't even really know her sign because, no, because like, you know how it is when you got parents from Caribbean the Caribbean, people. especially mm-hmm. like our mom is what, almost 60, right? Soon. Damn. Is she? <laughs> don't don't is put she her 57? on blast. But I'm saying that. She's 57. She's yeah. 57. She's from DR. Around that time, mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily giving out like the correct birth certificates. So is she really even 57? I don't even know her damn like sign, to be mm-hmm. honest. Of course, she has a birthday, y'all, but I'm just saying. Like, I don't know. She might be a Gemini, the way that she be acting. Yeah, she does give Gemini vibes yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Or something in her chart is in Gemini. Or a Cancer. Yeah, I can see the Cancer thing. Because I feel like that generation, at least, I mean, this is what I hear from her. And like, you know, it was different times. She was born in 1964. So... When a baby was born, a lot of the times it was home births that were happening. And then you would go into like, you know, the office or whatever to get the birth certificate for the child. But you might Mm -hmm. go in a week later or you might go in a few months later or a year later. Like, it just kind of depends. Be like, um, I think I had her (laughs) (laughs) on a hot summer day. Right. Like, I think that's what it was. But um, anyways, um. I do have an update about the case we did last week. And the update is that on Josephine's like religious ceremony pamphlet that they gave out, they actually did have like a little bit of a background on her and her life. Her eulogy? Is it her eulogy? No, obituary? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. How do you say it? Obituary? Yeah. Okay. On that. So... Mm -hmm. Based off of that, um, I learned that she was born... Well, we we knew she was born in the 1940s, and I gave the date May 8th, 1947. But um, basically, she was born into a very close-knit Christian family. She had a bachelor's degree from Edward Walters College in Jackson, Florida. Her master's degree was earned from Georgia State University. And then after that, she got her JD from John Marshall Law School in Atlanta, Georgia. And it turns out she actually had another kid, an older daughter, whose name was Renee, and she was a grandmother. Her grandson is Jamar. She also had a career in teaching before she became a lawyer. Like, she taught in public schools. She had stuff to do with, like, social work and, and whatever. She also was, like, a successful insurance agent. And then she went to law school. And like I said before, she did run for her seat as judge of the Superior Court. And she won in 1992. And she served until her death in 1996. So she did a little bit of everything. She did. And she was an AKA for the AKAs out there. Very serious about her faith as well. She was a founding member of her church. And that's really all the information it gave. And yes, it did say that she was survived by her two loving children, Renee Holmes of Tallahassee, Florida, and Raynard. Well, I will definitely post that link on our website so you guys can check it out under Josephine's post. And now we turn to this week's episode. For this week's episode, I used a few sources, mostly just one TV show called Code Justice, which appears on Oxygen. There's also a 2002 email that appears in the search engine, and it it seems like the article was written by a college or university. Um, the email address just says at webster.edu, but like if you type in Webster University, so many come up. 
this case has to do with like a case in Florida. There is one in Florida, but I don't know. It just came up in the search engine and I found it to be pretty useful. You can find this and all of today's sources on our website, www.isthemysteryforme.com or in today's show notes. So for this week's episode, we are journeying back to 1997 and to specifically Miramar, Florida, which is about 30 minutes outside of Miami. This is the case of Marie Altidore, Teresa Laverne, Samantha Altidore, and Sabrina Altidore. I just want to take the time to issue a trigger warning for today's episode because it does have to do with violence towards young children. As always, listener's discretion is advised. The Altador family was a Haitian family who had immigrated to Miami, Florida. Well, technically it's Miramar, Florida. Fun fact, I used to live in Aventura, Florida when I was a high school teacher at Miami Northwestern High School. Shout out to them. What does it have to do? Like, is it close to where they live? Yes. Miramar is like, from okay. Aventura, it's like 25 minutes. And from Miami, it's 30 minutes. And I feel like when people hear Miramar, like, they might just be like, where in Florida is it? Or maybe I just want to talk about myself. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Norma always calling me out. Always. Someone out there is like, yes, Norma, tell us to humble shut you. Shut up. Shut her mouth. <laughs> and tell us a damn story. Okay, fine. So... So the head of the household in this family was George Altador, who was 33 years old in 1997. He was married to Marie Altador, who also goes by Mommy, and she was 29 years old at the time. They got married in February of 1994, and they pretty much had two kids back to back somewhat. So their daughter, Sabrina, was six weeks old in 1997. And Samantha was two years old in 1997. And when I say that, 1997, I'm actually speaking about April of 1997, when the unfortunate events associated with this case occur. And just as a general FYI, I could not find their birthdays. That's why I'm trying to say that on April 30th of 1997, they were these specific ages. Does that make sense? Marie's mom, Teresa, was visiting from Haiti, though it's not specified how long she had been there. You can probably presume she was there to help Marie out with the kids, being that the youngest was six weeks old at the time. Marie's other sisters speak on the show Code Justice, and they say that their mom, Teresa, was a seamstress and just really, really loved cooking. But other than that, I couldn't find too many articles that really described Marie's personality or more of her mom's personality, etc. As for George, he was a plant manager and he was also a part-time realtor at the time. And this is according to the 2002 article slash email I referenced in the beginning. He had been married once before to a woman named Yannick and they had a son in September of 1991. And then it looks like at some point after that, he had divorced, right? And then he married Marie in Mm -hmm. February of 1994. April 30th, 1997 seemed to start out like any other day. George left the house at 7 a.m. to get to his plant job, which I don't even know, like, what he did specifically at this plant. You said he was a manager, right? Yeah, but it's not literally... He was managing the plant. But not a plant. I, like, I know, it's not I know. a literal plant. I know. 
I know. I don't really know he was, what he was managing. But it was nearby. And if he left his house at 7, he would get to work by 7.30, 7.31, 7.32, the latest. So from work, he tried to call Marie and he couldn't get in touch with her. So he called up his brother-in-law and he sent him over to the house. His brother-in-law gets to the house and he finds Marie, her mother, and the two girls murdered. Yeah, we got there pretty quick today. But this story was definitely carved out differently on Code Justice, and I kind of want to follow through with how they presented it. So what Mm -hmm. we're going to do is we're going to talk about the evidence they had back in 1997 when this happened. And then we'll look at the evidence that they've seemed to dive deeper into slash, you know, discover in 2021 when they did the show Code Justice. Now, for those who don't know, Code Justice is hosted by someone who used to be a prosecutor, and she just looks at cases that have gone cold over the years. She brings in a team, and she works with the police officers who were originally on the case. And if they weren't originally on there, they just work with that department, right? So they're local, et cetera. And she tries to bring her knowledge and expertise to help close the gaps. Just so you guys know, there have been results that have happened because of code justice. And when I say results, I mean justice has come from it. People have been arrested. So this show definitely is intriguing on many levels. And it was featured as the first episode of 2022 for Code Justice. So you imagine it was filmed in 2021, which means that it was filmed 24 years after the murder. So what happened during the first round of the investigation? Well, let's rewind a bit, okay? George is told of the devastating news and he is besides himself, or so it seems. He attends the funeral and so does the entire family. And the sisters who appear on the show talk about the fact that there were three caskets and not four. And that someone had gone up to Marie's casket in particular and said, why are they burying Marie with a doll in her hand? Remember, Marie's the mother. And her sister had to tell the person, hey, it's not a doll, it's her six-week-old baby. Because instead of giving the baby its own casket... Oh, my god! I know, it was so sad when they said it on the show. Seriously. So they had only three caskets, one for the two-year-old, one for Marie, and the six-week-old, and then one for Marie's mother. It was revealed on the show that George never talked to the sisters after the events. It's like nothing happened, is what one of the sisters said. So didn't talk to them in the sense that he was traumatized and trying to process it, or he was being shady? The way they said it, it made it seem like it was a little shady. Mm. Because they're wondering, you know, like, this happened to our sister, our mother, our nieces, and you've not said a word to us. That just kept them on edge. But we'll get more to George and we'll look at the whole case. Okay. Norma already got a look on her face. And I know some of y'all already like, Priscilla, stop playing with me. But I'm not trying to play. I'm just trying to show y'all the whole picture. I'm being Bob Ross right now. Let me paint the entire picture for y'all. So let's talk about the evidence that was left behind at the crime scene. 
on the wall was this message in marker and it said, quote, I want my hundred thousand plus drug money. They stole my drugs, end quote. So already suspicious. Turns out that nothing was actually stolen from their house. Like jewelry was still there. George's office was still locked and there was no sign of forced entry. Another piece of evidence is a phone call that was made on that morning at 7.09 a.m. And it was made from the house to Marie's godmother and godfather's house. And they live in Florida as well. You can imagine for the detectives and for everyone in this case, if someone from that house called, made an outgoing call, that means they were still alive because the godmother said it was a female voice that had called. And George's co-workers said that he did arrive to work on time that day, which means he would have had to leave the house at 7 a.m. This call went out at 7.09. Hmm. So this is the evidence that they have in 1997. I wonder, could the co-workers have gotten it wrong in terms of the time? Right. You know? Yes, and they didn't elaborate just if minutes. this was, like, something that was stamped, right? Like, yeah, was it in a computer? Like, it, they didn't really give that information. As for the writing on the wall, it was sent out along with a sample of George's handwriting for comparison purposes. Before I give you the results of that, I will say they spoke to George the next day after the murder, probably wanting to give him some, like, probably because they want to give him some time to kind of cool down. Um, You know, his whole family basically was just murdered. Mm -hmm. They did interview him for eight hours. It doesn't seem like he had an attorney at that point in time, Um, though it became clear later on that he did acquire an attorney by the name of Diaz, last name Diaz. The 2002 email says that they used tactics, including throwing water at him during the interview. Oh, no, no, no. This is definitely, that's not good. Right. At the end of the interview, they did not arrest him or anything because they didn't have anything to hold him on. His alibi was there. And, you know, for all they know, like, whoever could have written it on the wall, it could be a random person. This could be drug related. Mm -hmm. They just wanted him to crack. You know, they yeah. wanted him to say, I did this. Yes. And they weren't they weren't getting that. He definitely never admitted that he had any involvement. He was very much so like, I didn't do this. But they never showed like the tape or anything like that. I don't really know exactly what was said, but it's clear. If he had admitted to doing it, they would have arrested him, right? Yeah. So clearly mm-hmm. he didn't say that he did it. So the handwriting sample comes back and it turns out that the comparison is not a match. They send it out to someone else, a second person, and they come back the same way. It's not a match. Now, they definitely think about the drug-related angle. I mean, that is what the writing on the wall said. But they could not find anything connecting drugs to the family in any capacity. So, yes, it doesn't take long for the case to go completely cold. Now you're probably wondering, okay, tell us about the forensic evidence in terms of the bodies. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm getting there. Hold on. (laughs) You read my mind. (laughs) So let's dive into this and we'll also kind of take a turn to the 2021 revisitation of the case. And so for the show, they brought in a forensic pathologist to look over the medical examiner's 
files and stuff related to the case, okay? This forensic pathologist has looked at thousands of cases. She said this was one of the top five worst cases she has seen in her career. So the forensic pathologist explained that Marie and the wife to George, she was shot five times. Once in the left shoulder, and that seemed to be a re-entry wound. So it seemed like it went through something else and into another part of her body or something like that. Mm. She was shot through the side. And in that instance, it seemed like she was turning to get away. They, that's when they shot her through the side. She falls to the ground. She's then shot in the back of the head. She then sustains 19 blows to the left side of her face from a blunt force object that they believe was hammer-like. The thing about all of this is that they say it's overkill, okay? She was already dead from the gunshot wounds. These injuries happened after? Yes. She was, okay, so I'm thinking, ooh, hmm. I don't know who it is, but obviously this person had a lot of anger, right? Because why not just shoot her once in the head, right? You're shooting her repeatedly. Now you're basically taking a hammer to her face. What if her husband had, you know, a a lover on the side? I don't know. I don't know. I guess we're going to see. Now her mom, who was 60 years old at the time, according to Code Justice, sustained 23 injuries to her head. So she was actually hit first and then she shot. But the injuries in her case are not to just one side of her head, which indicates that she was moving around while she's being attacked. She's trying to fight the attacker, basically. Mm. And then when she's basically on the floor, they shoot her in the back of the head at close range. Next is a six-week-old. And at this point, I'm like, a six-week-old? You You couldn't just leave the baby? What was the baby doing to you? What did any of these people do to you? You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, this just seems like a lot. But a six-week-old, this even a two-year-old. illness to a different kind of level. Okay? Yeah, whoever did this is a sick person. But a, six mo- a six-week-old and a two-year-old can't defend themselves. Right. You know, it's not even a fair fight. Right. In any capacity. It's really sick. Definitely is. And... The baby sustained six injuries, blunt force trauma to the face. And that's how the baby was killed. No gunshot wound. This baby would have been 24 years old today. Samantha, the two-year-old, watched this entire ordeal play out in front of her. It was probably the scariest moments of her life, okay? She was hiding behind the couch when this killer then turned his or her attention to Samantha. Samantha sustained 22 injuries to her head. One of those injuries killed her. We don't know which one, okay? And she was found behind the couch. Was she shot or was just like blunt force trauma? It's just blunt force trauma only. Wow. So in total, that is 70 blows with a hammer-like object to the heads of four people. And at this point in the show, Kelly Siegler basically takes the hammer 
and slams it down on the table. I mean, it scared me because I was just watching and boom, boom, boom. Because she was just showing like, they did this 70 times. She became so enraged. She just grabbed the hammer and started slamming it. And I was just like, wow, this really shows like they had to put a lot of energy. You did this 70 times. Like Mm -hmm. that tells me there's a lot of hate there. Mm -hmm. This seems like a crime of passion. Mm -hmm. Again, to kill children that like, they can't even defend themselves. Poor little girl. I'm sure there, if there was a way for her to like figure out what to do or like run, like, you know what I'm saying? She's a kid. Like she probably was just like so afraid. And during the show, they never say what the time of death is. And it seems to me like they truly don't really know because that ends up being a point of contention in the show. At this point, there are two theories. There's a random intruder slash drug related theory. And then there's the dad husband did it theory. Okay. For the random intruder drug related theory, they just again emphasize that there was just no evidence of drug stuff found ever. So was the writing on the wall done for another reason? So, I mean, another reason they could have done this is to try and throw off the police officers, right? If you Mm -hmm. write that, I mean, you didn't take anything else. If they owed you drug money, why wouldn't you take everything else and pawn it, right? Or if you write that on the wall, wouldn't it make him want to tell the cops who did it, right? If he did owe someone drug money, so wouldn't that just put you on the line in your organization i mean unless you know some people just stick to street code and it's done and like they don't say nothing ever Mm -hmm. so that's the other side of it but it just seems to me like the wall writing is just so out of place so kelly and her team does send out the old samples of george's handwriting to a new crime lab to see what they are able to decipher and y'all They come back and they say, we agree with all the other crime lab stuff. Like he did not write this. They say that there's differences in the letter connections and the letter formulations and the introductory strokes when you're writing and that it likely isn't him. Okay, so it's not him. Okay, does he have any enemies? Sorry. I mean, it seems like they have gone down that route and... The two things, again, that they've come to is, like, it's either him or this random drug-related stuff, random intruder drug-related stuff. And right now, maybe that piece of evidence feeds into the fact that it's a random intruder slash drug-related incident, right? Because it's, like, it doesn't match his handwriting. So that actually is in his favor. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about what the hell they got on George, okay? So there is no evidence of trouble in his marriage to Marie, but detectives think that Marie was just a private girl. And they talk about the fact that, you know, certain communities, sometimes Caribbean communities, like Haitian communities, you just don't talk about certain things like that. They're just things that you just, you know, you keep a tight lip. And I agree with that. You might not just like, you might not be shouting this to the world. They did talk to the first wife the first time around. I should have mentioned that as part of the evidence. But basically, she had said to them that she was afraid of George. He had pointed a gun at her and her new boyfriend at the time and said, if I kill you, nobody would know. And when the cops brought him in at the time for questioning, he claimed he never owned a gun. But the way Kelly and her team saw it is that maybe George is just a really cocky dude. 
he thinks he's smarter than the cops. You know what I'm saying? And they did not pursue it much more than that. At least that's what it seems like on the show. Some of her friends did say that Marie was not happy with George necessarily. Her friend Chisetta said that actually, and that Marie said she was pressured to marry George, but didn't say by who. But Josetta also admitted that she never saw George mistreating Marie in person. Actually, she never really saw him at all when she was at the house. So she couldn't really speak much on that. But she did drop a huge bombshell. George was seeing another woman and Marie knew about it. Norma <laughs> just felt it in her spirit. It spoke to her. I knew it. And this lady was allegedly Florence. That's her first name. And she was a churchgoer. She had gone to the same church as them and lived within the same vicinity. Apparently a block or two away. And Marie knew this. And Marie said that. She gave that information to Josetta. This lady lives a few blocks away. So now the cops are thinking, wait a minute. Does he want to start a new life? Is that his motive? Because this never came up in the 1997 investigation. Well, did he? Did he start a new life with this Florence? We'll get back to that. We're going to circle the block on that one. Oops, I meant to say, Jacetta was Marie's aunt. They also talked to Erda, who was BFFs with Marie. She was visiting the home about a week before it happened, and she had left actually three or four days before April 30th. The detectives and Kelly decided to call her up and talk to her about the food that was left on the stove because apparently there was literal dinner on the stove when the police came in to do like the whole crime scene investigation type of stuff back in 1997 on April 30th, right? And no one really looked into that in 1997, but Kelly and her team thought, huh, that's interesting. Is that how like Marie and her mom were like dinner on the stove. I mean, it's early in the day Were they preparing dinner. And it just seemed like the dinner was from the night before. Like, I don't know how they determined that. I don't know if they looked at the contents of like Marie's stomach and her mom's stomach, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But basically it was determined that the food on the stove was from the night before. And then her best friend said like, you know, it's not like Marie to do that. She usually puts the food away every night. And I got to say this about Caribbean parents. They'd be putting that damn food in the fridge, mm-hmm. in Tupperware, with foil paper over it or something. <laughs> Sometimes I'm too lazy. I just put the whole pot. Oh, yes. <laughs> in the fridge. Right, right. But one thing about these parents, they ain't leaving nothing. I've seen mom get up half asleep. To put stuff in the fridge. Mm -hmm. For real. So they thought, huh. Now what does that mean? It might mean that they were killed the night before. And not the morning of. But how can they say that if a phone call was made? So Kelly and her team decided to call the person who got this phone call. Marie's godmother and godfather, right? They actually go and see her in person as a matter of fact. And they talk about this phone call that was made at 709 and they say, okay, tell us what happened. She said, yeah, like I heard a female voice and they said like, can I speak to my godfather? And I said, your godfather actually just left to bring the kids to school. And then the aunt, like not the aunt, the godmother herself said, is this Marie? And the person said, yes. She said nothing was weird about Marie reaching out to the godfather and she had promised to since the baby was born and she... 
I don't know, Marie had promised, okay, I'm going to reach out to you when the baby is born. But the godmother said it was strange for Marie to call that early in the morning. Like, that was just not something that happened. She usually called in the evenings. Mm -hmm. So basically, Kelly and her team were like, are you sure it was Marie who called? And she's like, I honestly don't know. And Kelly just reminded viewers, like, listen, it's not like the lady said, it's Marie. The godmother asked her if she was Marie, and she said yes. So now there's creating some sort of like, okay, this 709 that was basically helping his alibi can actually end up breaking his alibi. Because we know now that he was having an affair, okay? Mm -hmm. And now this phone call in 1997, they were sure that she had spoken to Marie. And now in 2021, they're like, wait, it might have not been Marie. And now we know this new information about his affair. Could it have been Florence? That would be a smart alibi to establish, showing an outgoing call from the house. The detectives also point out that there was no forced entry and that Florence had actually visited with Marie's family quite a bit in the past. And that part of the information that came from the 2002 email I was talking about that like Florence was like a regular at their house. So if Florence had come over that morning or even the night before, it would explain why, why it would explain why there's no forced entry because they know Florence. Uh-uh. So she's the side chick and she's just coming over <laughs> like and she's all up in their space. Yeah, yes, all up wow, in her face. That is disrespectful. So disrespectful. I wonder if she knew like when she was coming over that Marie already knows and like I don't even know how long Marie knew for. No, she must have known. Yeah. Like okay. Marie knows. The night before the murder happens, right? I mean, if we're looking at the they were murdered on April 30th, 1997 timeline, apparently George was at Florence's house two blocks away fixing her air conditioner, aka laying the pipe. I'm just (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You know, guys are sneaky is what I have concluded. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know, there's something about the name George and the fact that he's Haitian. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah, honestly, I thought about that when you first started. joke, y'all. Yeah, when you first started this case, I was like, oh no, not George. And he's Haitian. Another George. Is he also a Virgo? No, let me. Let me stop. Because then it would just be too coincidental. I don't know. But he is 33 at the time in 1997. Oh, that's, that's strange. I'm going to call George and say, you feeling spicier? <laughs> okay. That's funny. Um, yeah, inside joke. So back to the case. So Kelly and her team, basically, their job is to try and find a suspect for police officers to arrest. And right now, George is looking pretty good for it. On top of that, Kelly does focus on the fact that George called the house 16 times that day, which apparently was not his norm. They had checked other phone records and he was never that pressed to get in touch with Marie. Mm. I don't know how many times he called Florence. We, you know, they didn't give that information. <laughs> he sounded like he was a little pressed for Florence. While Erda was there, she did say that she saw them have an argument. So Marie and George had an argument. She didn't say what it was about or Who's even Erda, if it, the cousin? The best friend. 
Oh. She didn't really know too much. She just said that Marie thought that George was acting strange that week. And yeah, it was a week before the murders happened. So this is where it gets very spicy, y'all. Kelly, one thing about Kelly is Kelly is ballsy. She is ballsy. Her and one of the detectives hop in a car and make the journey to Oklahoma where George is living. George is having, let me tell you, George has a whole new life with none other than Florence. He married her around 1999, apparently. And Mm -hmm. they have been living in Oklahoma since I don't know when, but he out there because he's trying to become a pastor. I mean, it's debatable that he might need Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And well, on the car ride there, Kelly is just asking the detective, like, what George has been like over the years. Have you tried to make contact with him? Stuff like that. And the detective was like, well, in 2007, we tried, but he refused to talk to us and he wanted a lawyer. And this was just about updates about the case, not about him being involved. Mm -hmm. She said, that's weird. So they finally got to Oklahoma. They approached the door. They got a ring doorbell. You know what I'm saying? But I don't know. I thought at first they were talking through the ring doorbell, but they're actually talking through this like thing that you can open on the door. It's almost like a square and it has like bars on it. I don't know. It's, it's giving very much Florida vibes. I don't know how to explain Is it. Is it like um, almost like a peephole? Yes, but okay. it's like a square and you like yeah, open yeah. it up. Okay. So basically, basically the detective is like, hey, we would like to just talk to you about the case and give you some updates about the case. And he's like, please talk to my lawyer. And they're like, sorry? He's like, yes, please contact my lawyer, Mr. Diaz. And they're like, but this is just updates about the case. You don't want to hear about the murders of your two daughters. At one point, it's like he's stumbling over his words. And guess who comes to assist him from inside the house, of course? Florence. And she just also just saying, talk to his lawyer, talk to his lawyer. And eventually, he, you know, they're just, they just walk away. Kelly was telling the detective, like, you did a really good job standing your ground there and just like saying, hey, I have an update for you. You don't want to hear about the murder of your daughters. Like you don't want to hear about the murders of your family. You know, he really placed that emphasis. Y'all know how cops are. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but even that did not get him to open the door. So Kelly was just like, huh, that just seems very, very cold. But I think another way to look at it is that he is probably worried that they are going to arrest him. Yeah. Or pin it on him or something. And so he doesn't want to open the door to cops. He's been advised not to do so I mean, by his from lawyer. A, yeah, from a legal, from a a legal, legal perspective, yeah. yes. You know, from he's a doing moral like, right. perspective, yeah, it does sound like a little moral corruption there. You know what I'm saying? Um, I guess, but at the same time, everyone processes things differently. And, okay. right, someone coming to your door to talk about something that happened how many years 24 years years prior like that just might you know reignite the traumas that that person has it just might be too much where you know they they pretty much put that to bed to a certain Mm -hmm. extent and now you're telling this person that you have updates it's just it might just be too much we're talking about his children right right we're talking about his wife Okay, but if we're looking at the case and the evidence that I've talked about today, uh-huh. do you think that he had any involvement in the murders? I think it's very likely that he could have, but I don't have enough evidence to actually 
pin okay. it on him. Okay. That's the thing. It's all very circumstantial, you know? It is very circumstantial, but we've seen people go to prison for life yeah. on circumstantial evidence. And it's kind of like, well, is that even right? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Kelly sits with her family on camera and basically says, listen, this is what we were able to determine about the case. And we, and Kelly basically said, you know, we think George did it, mm-hmm. basically, okay? But there's not enough evidence. The cousin becomes so upset and starts crying and stuff and, like, just demanding justice. And she's like, we need to do something even with the circumstantial evidence. And then Kelly just basically tells her, like, try to go to the state attorney's office and ask for a meeting so that you can kind of express exactly what you've said here today. Mm. I mean, I think that this case is a really tough one. And I don't know. Looking at everything, I do think it's a strong possibility that he was involved with it. Yeah. And that maybe even Florence might oh, yeah. have been involved in Listen. It. Especially after he My eyes on phone Florence. Call. I mean, come on. Like My eyes on her. You remember know? the Celia Huda case where like it was like her boyfriend's like girlfriend who seemed quiet, like one of his boo things, Cassandra, had helped burn her body or something. Oh, yes. Remember? Yes. So it's not like you know, it's not far-fetched to think the quiet, like, side piece type of thing mm-hmm. is not involved. You know what I'm saying? Like, they what could if very she, much be involved. Sorry. What if she also, like, wrote the writing on the wall? Like, what if that was her? And you know? they never said if they sent it to be compared against anyone else's handwriting. Because 2021 seems like the year that they really discovered Florence's, like, even involvement with him. Which I'm like... That's interesting. That never came up in 1997 at all in any capacity. Mm -hmm. But even the family said, even after the murders, Florence would come to them crying. Oh, my God, I can't believe this happened and all that stuff. Florence, girl, come on. Come on now. Mm -mm. Can't be playing in people's faces like that. Lagrimas de cocodrilo. (laughs) (laughs) Norma's feeling very Dominican today. So let me tell y'all what else is going on or what happened in the case. Um, Let's talk about other updates regarding the case. So in 1999, there was a lawsuit in civil court. It was brought by Marie's family um, against George about negligence and intentional homicide. There's no real information on what happened with that. Okay. There was another outstanding lawsuit, presumably around the same time, and it had to do with life insurance policy that he tried to claim after the deaths of his wife and daughters. Like, specific to them. Of course, the grandmother died too, but there was Mm -hmm. no insurance policy on her that he had. But Marie's family also tried to make a claim for the money, and the insurance company basically had to file an action in court to try and move the money into the court's custody because of, like, the back and forth. I do not know the outcome of that either. There's no information that I could find. Mm. As we know, George is now married for the third time. Um, He does still live in Oklahoma. He was actually studying to become a minister, not a pastor. No idea if he actually was able to do that, though I I don't know. Is this a sign of, like, repentance, trying to become super religious? I don't think it's going to help. Or is it a sign to get closer because, like, this tragedy happened to your family and you're just trying to make sense of it? I don't know. 
we need more concrete evidence before we can say one way or another. And for that reason, not just because of what we think, but clearly the detectives don't feel like they have enough evidence. And so Mm -hmm. the case is still unsolved to this day. And it's now 25 years later. I really thought that they would be able to connect the dots and link it to George. I thought so too. I thought so too, but it just seemed to me. I thought that like if, you know, with reviewing the evidence that they would have found something that we didn't already know. Yeah. So that's really disappointing. No fingerprints? No. No DNA? Nope. They did not even talk about that. So that concludes this week's case. Just sending well wishes to Marie's family. I mean, they lost so many people they loved that day. Mm-hmm. Three generations. Just completely unfair. Completely unfair. And I do hope that the family is able to reach justice one day and that the answers become crystal clear. Yeah. And you know what's also kind of trippy? Last week, we mentioned a quadruple murder and Mm -hmm. the fact that I found this case. Like, I wasn't even looking for this case. I was just, like, clicking around, and I clicked on this video, and it just so happened to be about a black female family that was murdered. Like, you know. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they were all females, too. I mean, I would have covered it if it wasn't all females, like I do sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I was like, that's trippy. We literally were just talking about quadruple murders last week. Yeah. So there's that. Another episode, another cautionary tale. Stay away from George's. <laughs> another yeah. cautionary tale. Ladies, if your man is having an affair, keep both eyes open. I don't know. It just something about this case just does not sit right in my spirit. Yeah, no. Like I, I feel like we're so close to an answer or possibly having an answer, but because there's no evidence, like concrete evidence, yeah. we can't really say for sure. I definitely think that they were in cahoots together. Possibly to do this together. Yeah. Yeah. George and Florence. But maybe we will find out in our lifetime. Let us know what you guys think in our comments, DM us, whatever. What side are you on? Do you think that George did it? Or do you think it was a random intruder? And with that said, be safe out there. We will see you next Tuesday. Because I think the brujeria is over. I rebuke you. (laughs) Bye. Right. Bye, guys.